0: He gives the kingdom of Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program.
1: My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have a Bible handy, turn to Matthew chapter 10. That's where we're going to begin today, in Matthew chapter 10. Now, the first few verses from the chapter indicate that in the context, Jesus is going to be talking to his original 12 disciples. So let's keep that context in mind while also noting a lesson here. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 17, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of men for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues and you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, is a testimony to them and to Gentiles. He goes on to say here in verse 21, Brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And in verse 22, you will be hated by all on account of my name. He describes persecution in verse 23. Going on down to verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, as I said earlier, in the context, Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples. So there are some things about Matthew chapter 10 that aren't going to translate over into our lives precisely. But there's still a great lesson to be learned here. That if you're going to follow Jesus don't be shocked or surprised when people hate you for it. If you're going to follow Jesus, don't be shocked or surprised that the whole world hates you on account of the name of Jesus. Family members might betray you. People who you thought loved you and cared about you, they'll turn their backs on you because of your profession of faith. And Jesus is warning his disciples, don't be shocked by that. The message of the gospel is one that's meant to bring us close to God. But in coming close to God, it might cause a separation between us in our earthly relationships. He goes on down in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 10. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he doesn't mean that in a violent sense. He's simply saying that the message of the gospel is one that's going to tear people apart. Because it is truth, and some people love truth, and some people hate the truth, by its very nature, the gospel message is going to tear people apart. It says in verse 35, For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, God doesn't rejoice in that. He doesn't enjoy that. He doesn't revel in the idea that his message is going to tear people apart. But it just is what it is. The gospel is truth. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a message that's uncompromising. And if you're going to follow that uncompromising message, then people who don't want to accept that message, people who don't want to accept that truth, well, they won't want to follow after you. They won't want to be around you. The gospel by its very nature is going to divide people, not because God wants people divided, but because there will always be people who love truth and people who want to reject truth. And those two things can't go hand in hand. They they can't coexist with each other. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. So how does one answer Matthew chapter 10? When you've been told that people will hate you because of what you believe, how do you respond to that? With fear? Tears? With tears? With strength? In Matthew 10, we're told not to fear those who kill the body, but rather to fear the Lord, who has the power beyond that of any human being. And I want to talk to you today about this choice. Do we follow our human instincts, our natural desires, or wisdom that's from men, or do we risk everything and follow a higher calling? One choice leads to salvation, the other one doesn't. Unfortunately, one choice may also involve quite a bit of personal, physical sacrifice. Every day, it seems like at least, we see sinners who have no trouble. They have no trouble sending their kids to college or paying for their house or starting a business. Every day, it seems like we encounter people in denominations who seem to enjoy amazing success in their churches and offer nothing but cleverly manipulated evidence of their validity. They don't preach the truth, but... Earthly success in numbers and in money and in cultural prestige seems to indicate that all is well in those kinds of churches. We hear stories from around the world of Christians in in the Philippines or in China or in Zimbabwe and other places, Christians who starve to death or who are imprisoned by their governments, who suffer great tribulation as a direct result of their profession of faith. Do you ever have trouble keeping your mind on spiritual things? When the world starts weighing on you, do you ever doubt or wonder why it is that God's own people seem to suffer so much? I hope that we can explore these kinds of questions today in our radio program. And if things are tough for you, if life is tough, if life is hard, if things aren't going well, then maybe a radio program like this is just what you need. Of course, there's always the invitation that if you want to have a a one-on-one conversation and talk about things in your life in a more detailed way, we can sit down and open up our Bibles together in a Bible study, and we can talk about those things. The invitation's always there. Now, we're created in the image of God. Not that we ourselves are as pure as God is pure, but that we have one thing that separates us from all the rest of the creation— We have a conscious awareness of our Creator and the mental and spiritual capacity to make rational or irrational decisions. Unlike the animals, we're not guided by instinct. We're guided by choice. In Joshua chapter 24 of the Old Testament, notice verses 14 and 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served. The gods beyond the river and the gods of Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves to whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose. It's clear that man has a choice in every matter in this life. God's not going to choose for us but he most certainly hopes that we make the right choice. In fact, in a great scripture reference, he even says that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Also in the same chapter of Deuteronomy 30, in verses 9 and 10, it says that God will rejoice over you for good if you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. God rejoices when you choose the right thing. Think about that. You have in God the greatest motivator, the greatest encourager. He is cheering you on. He is rooting for you to make good choices. And today, we we still have a choice. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus and his disciples and how they were sent into the entire world to preach the truth. In Romans 6, we read that baptism is how we're buried and reborn in Christ's likeness. And in John 14, verse 6, we're told that one can only know the Father through Jesus Christ. So this is our choice. Do we choose to follow God and be baptized and live a faithful life for Him, or do we choose to reject the call of Christ and try to live our life the way we think it should be lived? Before you can make your decision, though, you have to completely understand what is expected of a Christian. That's why a person is asked for a confession of his or her belief before being baptized. We want to know just exactly what it is that you believe. And are you going to make the commitment to follow through with that belief? As I've already read in Matthew chapter 10, Christ never said that being a believer would be easy. He said that families would be broken up as a result of the faith, and that a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Christians are expected to be set apart from this world, lights unto the darkness and salt of the earth. Christians are never supposed to worry about the cares of the world or lose heart because times are rough. Christians are expected to endure hardship, but at the same time, fulfill the command to evangelize, and that without delay, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. The expectation is that we're able to preach regardless of the situation, especially especially regardless of the state of our worldly affairs. Whether we're rich or poor, young or old, healthy or sick, the opportunity is always there for us to be a light in the world and to make a difference in people's lives. In Second Timothy 2 verse 15, we're told to be diligent in the way that we handle the word of truth so that we may be approved by God as faithful workers. In Philippians 4 verse 11 Paul writes that he had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself. He tells us that in poverty and wealth there's a way to maintain our composure and a Christian attitude. How do we do this? What happens when you lose your job or your house burns down or America goes to war and your husband or your child is sent away or your grandmother gets sick and, and dies? We're being asked by God to transcend above all the, the craziness and the ugliness and sometimes the sinfulness of this earth. When we stop making money or influence or pride or romance our focus and start making God our focus, we'll, we'll all be surprised at how productive our minds can be. The practical expectations of Christians include constant study of the scriptures, First Thessalonians five twenty-one and first Timothy four verses thirteen through sixteen says they're to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, persevere in these things. We need to attend worship services, Hebrews ten, verse twenty-five, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Having a proper attitude when we partake of the communion, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And most importantly, to have genuine love, to love God with all our heart, to love each other. To consider each other is more important than ourselves. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. He goes on to say that by all this, by this kind of love, he says, all men will know that you're my disciples. I'd like to think that being a Christian has made my life blissful and trouble-free and that I suddenly know the answers to every question... But I don't. And my life isn't trouble-free. And while it is certainly true that being a Christian has enriched my life in ways that, that no other pursuit could have, there are a lot of times that, that being a Christian comes with, a, with some cost. I've been ridiculed by people whether it was in high school or college or ridiculed by, by neighbors. I have to endure the ridicule that I see on social media. I have to hear ridicule on the news. Of course, I don't have to hear it. I could always turn the TV off. But the fact is that that ridicule does exist. Whether we're aware of it or whether we push the mute button and ignore it, that, that ridicule exists. It's everywhere. Because I believe in the Bible, this society of ours calls me sexist or a bigot or homophobic or just an old-fashioned fool who believes in a bunch of fairy tales. I've heard of entire churches that are so tired and bitter that all faith has been lost. I've seen Christians fall into tears because of the hard times that have been hit and the pain that they've suffered because of their belief in God. There's a man in the Bible named Demas who we read about in Paul's epistles. In the book of Philemon, verse 24, Paul says that Demas is one of the faithful workers of God. And yet in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, we read that Demas eventually fell away from the faith because, in Paul's words, he loved this present world. He loved the world too much. And being a Christian cost him too much worldly things. I've read in the book of Job, and I've read about Paul, And I've heard about Jesus Christ himself, who have seen more horrible experiences and more spiritual heartache than I hope I ever see. The Apostle Paul knew about trouble in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Paul gives an account of how many times he'd been beaten, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, and and in hunger and cold for days at a time. But through all of this, Paul had one thing to say, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians four verse thirteen and if Christ was the source of Paul's strength, then he had to have gone through even more than Paul. There is nobody who suffered as much as our Lord suffered. He is called the man of sorrows in Isaiah fifty three, and he did it all for us. And this kind of leads to our next point. There is an upside to every downside. And when we consider the matchless love and grace of Jesus Christ, then we realize that all of those downsides I just talked about really can't compare to all the up that we have in him. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think this passage explains it better than any other. In 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The writer is telling us here that these afflictions and troubles that we often encounter, as a result of our faith, well, they most often result in greater strength, if if we have the right perspective. So let's try to consider how suffering can do this. With our last few minutes here, how does suffering make us stronger? The best way to explain this, I think, is to look at two examples of churches in the first century that experienced opposite ends of the quote-unquote suffering spectrum. In Revelation chapter 3, we read about the church in Laodicea. Although they were very wealthy in this present world and they didn't experience physical suffering like other Christians did, Jesus considered them poor and wretched. They had become lukewarm, comfortable in all of their habits. They had no motivation to fulfill their ministry and had thus become distasteful to God. He says here in Revelation 3 verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich. Real rich. Real wealth. Not the physical wealth that they had become accustomed to. See, in Laodicea, they were a comfortable church. Everything was going well for them. Their membership had plenty of money, plenty of comforts, plenty of food. They have no need of anything. But Jesus points out to them that in your physical comforts, you're actually quite poor, quite hungry, quite miserable spiritually. Now, do you think this condition was limited strictly to the church in Laodicea? Well, I don't think so either. I've worshipped at a lot of churches, and I've seen a pretty wide range when it comes to spiritual enthusiasm. It's interesting to see how wealth and passion often correspond with each other. It is not always to be sure, not always, but sometimes the richest churches in the most peaceful places in the world will lose their faith the fastest. Look at the way the Laodiceans were talking. They said, we've become rich. We have no need of anything else in verse 17. They were rich, peaceful, comfortable. Why rock the boat? Unfortunately, God doesn't like their kind of comfort because it's complacency. And complacency tends to breed apathy, apathy of the worst kind. Why do you think placid water has so much algae in it? Or why do you think mosquito larvae love standing water? The more apathetic our souls are, the easier it is for Satan to spread his lies. In the C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters, one devil writes to another and says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Satan loves lukewarm. He thrives on the comfortable soul, happy in its boring surroundings without any immediate need for God. And that's the trap that we fall into. When times are good, who needs God? Well, let me tell you you always need God. Every moment that you live, you need God. When times are good, do you know who's behind it all? God. This wonderful country that we have, do you know who allows it to exist? It's God. James 1 verse 15 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The point is that when good things do happen to us, we should never forget the one who allows those good things to happen, who's facilitated the existence of those good things. And those good things are not inherently sinful. It's not sinful to be rich. It wasn't sinful for Laodicea to be rich. What was sinful was for them to look at their physical comforts, their physical wealth, and assume that they didn't have any spiritual needs. The Laodiceans forgot all about the one from whom they were richly blessed and tasted so awful that it made God want to spit them out. Now, on the other end of that suffering spectrum was the church in Philadelphia, which we read about in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. They had apparently experienced some kind of persecution in their community, especially at the hands of other people who claimed to be religious. They weren't rich. They weren't at peace with the world. In fact, one might say that this was the most hostile environment for Christianity to be taught. There was persecution even to the point of violence. Christ goes on to tell them that because of their perseverance, they will become pillars in the temple of God. So pain and suffering produced strength at Philadelphia, yet apathy and wealth produced sin leading to death in Laodicea. So in my mind, there are two kinds of persecution. One is called persecution of wealth, and the other is persecution of pain. The first happens when a church or a Christian becomes comfortable in his surroundings with the same group of people, never desiring to evangelize, always fearing change. These churches end up never growing, and they often look exactly the same as the next denomination down the street. Tired, weak, unimpressed by the pure words of the Bible, even though outside appearances, physical conditions might be very good, spiritually They're dead inside. They're not in love with God. But the persecution of pain takes the Christian in an entirely different journey. When one chooses to serve God regardless of the physical sacrifice, he or she ends up seeing that there's something more important than the trivial pursuits of this life. This life is just a vapor, after all, and striving after the wind. It's the whole book of Ecclesiastes. We're told by Jesus to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, We do this by rejecting the allure of the treasures of the world. It's not that the treasures of the world are wrong in themselves or that they're inherently sinful. But when we love those treasures, when we stockpile those treasures to the neglect of our spiritual needs, treasure your Bible, treasure and long to partake of the pure milk of the Word, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, if you're not a Christian, you really ought to be. Please consider the words of Jesus himself who said in Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. If that's an invitation that applies to you, it's time to obey it. But maybe you've got more questions. You'd like to sit down and study further. Reach out to Monte Vista. And we'll set up a Bible study with you. We'll sit down, just open up our Bibles together and show you straight from the Word of God what it is that God has in mind for you. And what you need to do to live right in His eyes. So, any need that you have, let us know about it. And as always, my friends,
0: have a wonderful and blessed day. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 930 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Montavista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.